how you act in every circumstance in life, in every context. So it's all about walking. How does God want us to walk? Well, he wants us to walk as mature Christians, basically, and that's what he lays out in the last three chapters of Ephesians. All these commands are, this is how a mature Christian lives. Are you a mature Christian? You don't need to answer that out loud. Am I a mature Christian? Well, I need to compare my life, my attitudes, my thoughts, and my actions with chapters 4, 5, and 6, and that will determine, that will help me gauge whether I am a mature Christian in terms of how I live. And that's Paul's goal here for us, to walk as mature people. And so he's going to tell us how to live a godly, mature Christian life. In other words, you talk the talk, or are you going to walk the walk, is what he's saying. Be consistent with your profession of faith in Christ. And he's going to help us practically to do that. Now, verses 1 through 16 are a unit. You should know that in chapter 4. The first thing that Paul wants us to understand and know is if you are a Christian, then you need to live a Christian life, you need to live a godly life in the context of the local church, because that's what chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 is all about. It's in the context of the local church. If you are a Christian, you got saved not to be a Lone Ranger Christian, you got saved to be part of a community, you got saved to be part of a spiritual family, you got saved to be part of the body of Christ. Everybody is saved into a larger body than themselves. We are all like cells in a body. Have you ever looked at a cell under a microscope? Interesting what you see. You've got, here's a cell. We're all, if you're a Christian, you're a cell. And then if you're a cell, what do you have around you? You have people all around you. Now, I know that gives some people the willies because some people have their, they think other people have cooties and they don't want people too close to them. But that's true about a cell. A cell has, it is surrounded by other cells in the body. They are all a part of the body. Right? Another interesting thing about cells is not only are they surrounded by other cells, those other cells are touching them. That's close proximity. They are surrounded by five other cells that are touching them. And they're sharing one life together. And they're exchanging things. And they're accountable to one another. And their life is open and bare to everybody else. That's the calling of the Christian life. We need to be touching other people's lives, living in close proximity to many people. Uh, the proverb says that the man who isolates himself is a fool. And did you know there are people like that? They want to live at arm's distance from everybody else. They want to isolate themselves. They want to be the Lone Ranger Christian. And that is the very antithesis of what Paul is going to lay out here. Everything that he's laying out here is in the context of family, the context of community, the context of the phrase that he uses there. Look at verse 2. One another. You need to fulfill all of these obligations and walk in a manner worthy of your calling with one another, in tandem with one another, interdependent with one another. That's the Christian life. Very important. So we need to understand this is corporate living, not just individual living. And it's corporate living in the local church is what Paul is primarily concerned about. So if he were speaking to us today, he'd say, this is how I want the Christians who profess to be believers at Grace Bible Fellowship to interact with one another. This is how they should function with one another in their local church. That's the emphasis and the priority in this whole passage. And the goal in all of this in verses 1 through 16, our first obligation as a church in terms of the goal that we're pursuing is maturity. Maturity as a local church. And what is one of the signs of maturity, the earmarks of maturity, one of the greatest outward tangible signs of true spiritual maturity, according to Paul, is unity. Because he says it several times in this passage, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Let's just look at a couple of examples. Look at verse 3, if you've got your Bible open there, chapter 4, verse 3. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Live like a Christian to fulfill the goal of what? Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. To preserve the unity in your local church. That's the theme. That is the goal. 
to preserve the unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. What is peace? Well, it is the absence of war, but it's more than that. It's getting along harmoniously and intentionally. That is peace. So that's the goal in this passage. He goes on. We are shooting for the goal as a local church to have true unity and harmony in the Lord. And by the way, it's not just a... It's not just unity for unity's sake, or it's not unity at all costs. It is unity in the truth. Unity in accordance with the Word of God. Unity in terms of the mandates given here. That's the unity that we are pursuing. But unity is one of the hallmarks of true Christian maturity. Look at verse 13, same chapter there. He says, uh, God is trying to build the church and grow the church And one of his goals in verse 13 is until we all, every Christian, attain the unity of the faith. That's the goal. Unity, harmonious. The middle of verse 13, he talks about the mature man. A unified church is a mature church. And just the opposite is true. A divisive church is an immature church. A divisive, bickering, backbiting church is a sinful church, a dysfunctional church, a disobedient church uh, that grieves the Spirit of God, that inhibits the work of God in their life corporately. And that is exactly what the Corinthians were. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says to the Corinthians, by the way, Corinthians was a church that the Apostle Paul, he planted that church, he was a church planter. He pastored that church for over a year and a half. He poured his life into that church. He left, and then he heard news later that they'd become a divisive church. And they were arguing with one another, fighting with one another, forming cliques. And the Apostle Paul had to write 1 Corinthians to rebuke them for their fleshly divisiveness. And he just told them, you guys are immature, you're like babies, you are not unified. That is not maturity. Spiritual maturity equals unity in the Lord and getting along. Being, living harmoniously together. So that is Paul's emphasis, that is his calling for us, that should be the goal for Grace Bible Fellowship to pursue unity. I've been a part of enough churches both attending there, serving there, and even working at many churches, where there wasn't unity. And it it is troubling. Like I said, it grieves the Spirit. So there is no greater joy than to be with a group of Christians, especially in the local church, where everyone is unified. It's blessing. It's encouraging. It's like on the front of the bulletin, we put that psalm there, where it says it is a blessed thing when brothers dwell together in unity. It's a wonderful thing. It is a good thing when brothers, when Christians get along in unity. Actually, that's God's perspective. He's the one that said that in Psalm 133. God is pleased when he looks down and sees Christians getting along. God is encouraged. God is pleased. It's a good thing from God's perspective. And just one more thing in light of this unity that we need to be pursuing as a major goal for us as Christians, and especially as a local church, is that Jesus said two times in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 17 and also in chapter 13 and 15, where Jesus said, His prayer and his desire was that his disciples would be one. That his disciples, that believers, would be unified. And then he gave a reason for that. My prayer is that you would be unified and get along, because if you are, then the world will know that you are my disciples. If you are unified, living harmoniously together, then you'll be a great testimony to the unbelieving world. So when Christians are fighting and bickering and not getting along and backbiting and conniving and everything else, then we are distorting the beauty of the picture of who Jesus Christ is to the world. They look at the church and they see a muddled, disfigured, emaciated Christ that they don't want anything to do with. And that's why unity in the truth among Christians is so important. It's one of our greatest testimonies to a lost and dying world that needs Christ.
So let's pursue that unity. And so I came up with just some practical principles there for you in your bulletin of how we can pursue unity. And it's interesting if you look at Paul's strategic attack on how to his strategic attack on how to attain unity in the local church. He does this with the Corinthians. He does it right here. His twofold attack is to get unity or to preserve unity in the church, you need to do two things. You need to address people's attitudes. That's, that comes first. Individual attitudes comes first. That's verses 1 through 3. And then you need to address their theology. They need to have right thinking and attitudes, and they need to have right theology. Those are absolutely key. Two pillars to having true unity in the church. And that's what he's going to do for us. So he's going to address our attitudes that they would be right, and then our right thinking or theology. And as a result, hopefully we can attain to unity in this local body and even in the universal church. So let's go ahead and look at those. The last time we looked at uh, attitudes we need to have to preserve unity in the church. And the first two that we already addressed was humility, which is having an accurate view of yourself as a sinner and as a finite creature, which we all are, right? And that helps us view ourselves accurately. So preserving unity starts with the view of ourself, an accurate biblical view of ourself, a humble view of ourself, of who we are in Christ. And that's why Paul said in Romans, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. It starts there with the right attitude, a humble attitude about ourselves. So it's humility, and then the other one was gentleness. That's how you treat other people in light of a a humble attitude about yourself. So it's what we think about ourselves, and it's how we treat other people. And then Paul goes on, let's go ahead and look at these other attitudes that help us preserve unity in the church. Starting at verse 2, or I'm just going to start at verse 1 and read through verse 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility, we talked about that, and gentleness, we said was meekness, right, or power under control. Then he adds a couple more attitudes. With patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So if we want to be unified, we need to be humble, we need to be gentle. And the third one is, next on your list there, is we need to be patient. This word here for the Apostle Paul, he uses it several times. He uses it consistently in the word for patience. It's a compound word. It means long-fused. You are a person with a long fuse as opposed to a short fuse, a short temper. Or long-suffering, says some translations. So if you evaluate yourself, are you characterized by a short fuse or a long fuse? A couple other things about this word patience that is absolutely essential to preserving unity in the church. Uh, It means enduring difficult circumstances, hard circumstances, trials in life, the ability to endure through those circumstances. That's patience. It means waiting in hope, waiting optimistically that God is eventually going to relieve you at some point. Uh, patience, biblical patience is seeing the big picture, not being myopic in how you view circumstances in life. To be patient means to don't expect immediate results, but rather lasting long-term ones, because those are better anyway, aren't they, than a superficial quick fix. Another key principle about understanding true biblical patience is to have the understanding that God uses time to accomplish His purposes and to reveal His perfect will. That's very important. Remember that. God uses time to accomplish His purposes. And time requires what? Patience. As God is up there orchestrating everything providentially, sovereignly in control of everybody's lives and doing all... Obviously, it's going to take time to get, every, time to get everything in place. So God uses time. We need to be patient as such. The last thing I want to say about patience, if you go to Galatians chapter 5, Paul lists the deeds of the flesh, sinful deeds, and then he lists the deeds of the Holy Spirit, or he calls the fruits of the Spirit. Patience is listed as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, patience in a human is an off, uh, a byproduct of the Holy Spirit. In other words, having supernatural biblical patience does not come naturally to any one of us. We can't conjure it up on our own. It comes from one source. And that is the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you if you're a Christian. That's your resource for having patience. So we need to go to God if we lack patience and say, God, you need to give me patience. Help me exercise the patience you've already given me through the Holy Spirit so that I won't be a short-tempered person. Uh, So we need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God because it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. We can't come up with it on our own willpower. Totally impossible. An unbeliever cannot fulfill this mandate to be patient because an unbeliever doesn't have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. But if we are patient people, that will help us preserve unity in the body. Paul goes on, not only do you have to be humble, gentle, and patient, but he says, showing forbearance. Or some translations say, bearing with one another. You've got to show forbearance towards one another. You've got to bear with one another. Literally, this word could be translated, enduring with other people or tolerating other people. Now, if you live in a family, if you are married, you know this principle. You have got to tolerate the other person living in your home. Why? Because we are all sinful. And when you get two sinful people living together, whoa, you've got to exercise tolerance, don't you? Bearing with one another. Literally, another translation is putting up with. We need to put up with each other, don't we? That's just a reality. And the more people you've got living together, the more we need this virtue of God to bear with one another, tolerate one another. Uh, the emphasis is on tolerating other people, not circumstances. It's people, whether they're difficult people or not. It's just tolerating other people. Here's, listen to this. It also has reference to allowing for differences to coexist in harmony. Differences between believers are to be allowed and tolerated. Think of that. It's a good thing to allow differences. Now, by differences, I don't mean differences. We're not allowing sin, of course. We deal with sin. And we're not allowing false teaching. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about allowing differences that are non-essential. Allowing differences that are secondary. Allowing differences that are gray areas. Allowing differences that are preferences and tastes. Those are the kind of uh, tensions and differences you have to allow as we patiently tolerate one another and grow in grace with one another. We need to tolerate one another. Allowing even each other's idiosyncrasies and different backgrounds and different cultures and different customs and different personalities. That's what it's talking about. We need to tolerate these. That's hard to do. Again, this is a supernatural virtue that only through the Spirit of God can we accomplish this, where we can biblically tolerate one another. Did you know that you can have perfect harmony and unity if you don't agree with somebody all of the time? It's possible to be harmonious with somebody even if you don't agree with them all of the time. This is true of marriage. You can have a good marriage even where the spouses don't always agree on everything all of the time. As a matter of fact, I don't think there are two people on earth that agree with everything all of the time. Uh, as a matter of fact, somebody said, if two people agree about everything all the time, then one of them is not thinking. Isn't that true? Yeah, one of them is afraid or a doormat or whatever, or being brainwashed. But that is not healthy. So you don't have to have agreement on absolutely everything all the time to have harmony or unity. But you do have to have agreement on the essentials, and Paul's going to get to that in just a second. But regarding forbearing, well, you might be thinking, man, it's hard to tolerate some people. You don't know this person, or they rub me the wrong way more than they rub you the wrong way. Or you don't live with this person. They are hard to tolerate. How do we do that? Well, Paul tells us how you do that. It is hard to tolerate another person. For sinners to tolerate each other. So the key is in verse 3, or verse 2, forbear one another or tolerate one another in love. That's the key. You have to do it with love. Without the love of God shed abroad in your heart because you are a Christian, because the Holy Spirit of God 
put the uh, fruit of the Holy Spirit of love in your heart, you can't tolerate other people. You won't be able to. It's, it's, not, it's beyond our ability as humans, inherently as sinners. We need the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit to love one another, to tolerate, tolerate one another. So the key to dealing with tolerating other people and all their idiosyncrasies and things and preferences we don't like about them is love. We need to be motivated by love. And what is biblical love? It's different than the world's love. Love from the Bible, it is sacrificial. It is an act of giving. It is selfless. It is other-oriented. It's not based on emotion, but based on the will. Love is a choice. Love seeks the other person's good. Love has spiritual components to it. Love was modeled by God. And last of all, love is a supernatural virtue. Once again, we can't love on our own. Only a Christian can truly love in this capacity because it is the supernatural gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we need to ask the Holy Spirit, God, help me love the way Christ loved other people. Without Him, we can't do it. Okay, well, let's go on. So those are the attitudes we need to have to preserve unity. Now let's look at the right doctrine or teaching or theology we need to have to have unity in the church. And that's point number three in your outline. And that is that true spiritual unity is based on our view of the Trinity. Our view of the Trinity. Because in verses four through six, you're going to note that Paul mentions the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as our model. And the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's three persons, one God. So the one emphasizes unity Yet there are three persons, and these three persons get along perfectly, harmoniously. Perfect unity, so God is the model that we should follow. So it is possible to live with another person and have unity because God accomplished it in the Trinity, and that's his emphasis. And even from that, there are some important principles that we keep, need to keep in mind. So let's read verses three, uh, 4 through 6. Uh, Paul says, There is one body... And one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What word jumped out that was repeated seven times? One. One, 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 one. That's unity. Jesus prayed in John 17, Lord, I pray that the disciples, they would be one. That was Jesus' prayer. That means he prayed that the disciples would be unified. One accord, one heart, one spirit. So Paul says seven times. Here's how it's possible for you to be unified because you're already one in all these seven different areas. Seven realities, seven biblical truths that are already true regarding unity, oneness among all of us. So let's go ahead and look at those. Um, They are one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And if you're a Christian, every seven of those apply to you. Therefore, you should be one with every other Christian that's standing next to you. That's his point. So we need to look at what he's talking about. What does he mean by all these ones? There's one body. That just means there's one universal church. Every person that gets saved is baptized into the body of Christ. That was 1 Corinthians 13 that Walt read previously. Every Christian is a part of Christ's church. Whether you're born 700 years ago or today and you become a Christian, you become part of that one universal church. It's not talking about the local church there. It's talking about the spiritual body of Christ once you get saved in Christ. Uh, Because we're all part of one universal church, here's the important point. We all have equal status in the body of Christ. Did you know that? If you are a Christian, we all have equal status in the body of Christ. Regardless of your age, regardless of your economic, socio-background, or even what your role is in the church. If you're a Christian, you have equal status in the body of Christ. No one Christian is more important than the other. The pastor is not more important than the third grader. 
And on and on it goes. The deacon isn't more important than the layperson. And on and on it goes. That's Paul's point. There is one body. We're all unified. We are all in Christ. Then he goes on, there's one spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit there, verse 4. There's one body, one church, one spirit, one Holy Spirit. And he's trying to remind the Christians of that. There's a lot of implications about that, but basically what he's saying is that every Christian has the Holy Spirit living inside of him or her, and it's the same Holy Spirit. Did you know the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of me lives inside of you if you're a Christian? Did you know that the same amount of the Holy Spirit lives inside of you if you're a Christian that also lives inside of me? And that same Holy Spirit that lives inside of you if you're a Christian gives you equal access to God the Father in heaven by virtue of a relationship and prayer. By virtue of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, every single one of us, regardless of our training, our background, how long we've been a Christian, how old we are, our gender, we are all equally priests before God, which means we have direct access to God and can talk to Him through prayer at any time. And that is because of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. One Spirit. We all have equal status. So we need to view every other Christian properly. That preserves unity. That keeps people from being arrogant and proud. It keeps us all humble. And that's his point here. He goes on. One body, one spirit. We all have one hope. That preserves unity. Thinking about this. One hope. Well, hope is something that is not a reality. Hope is something that's going to be a reality in the future, we hope. So hope is catapulting us to the future. Our view of the future. Our view of what happens after the grave. So we should all have the same theology about the future that unites us together and keeps us unified. In other words, this gives us the same target. We're all heading the same direction. We're all going to the same goal. What is one of the greatest hopes that unites all Christians together or the greatest expectation we have that should affect daily living is the hope that Jesus could return at any time. Do you believe that? That's what the scripture says. And that should affect the way we live. That unites us in hope in many ways. So there's a lot of things Promises from God that give us hope that should unite us in terms of how we're living now. We should all be going in this direction, hoping, facing this way. The problem is, is when somebody starts hoping in the wrong things, hoping in earthly things, temporal things, meaningless things, they're not going that way anymore towards resurrection, Christ's coming, the promises of God, eternal life. They're, they've done a U-turn and they're going this way. Hope in their finances, their material, their family, their goals, their aspirations. And then they're bumping and rubbing shoulders with every other Christian. We go, hey, we got a problem. We're all elbowing each other. What's going on? Well, it could be that this person has the wrong... They put their hope in the wrong thing. And as a result, you have discord. You don't have unity. If we all have the same hope, we're all going the same direction in terms of our, how we're oriented towards the future. So one body, one spirit, one hope. He goes on. One Lord should unite us together. And he's referring to Jesus here. Jesus is the risen Lord. Jesus is alive. Jesus is the Lord of the church. He is looking down. He is expecting things from his church and from every Christian. So that's his emphasis here. Jesus is one Lord. If you're a Christian, we all have the same Lord. There's only one master, one boss, one head, one chief, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means every one of us who are Christians, we are taking orders from the same person. We are taking orders from the same boss. As a result, as we obey his orders, we should all be harmoniously living among one another, right? The problem is when you have two bosses and you're trying to take orders from two different bosses. Jesus himself said it. No man can serve two masters. You will have confusion. You will have a conflict of interest. You will have double-mindedness. And as a result, you will have conflict. But we have one Lord. It's the Lord Jesus. He's the only head of the church. It's kind of like all of us, we are in the symphony and we're all looking at the one conductor, right? Now, what if you had three conductors? And they're all, they all got their own agenda. 
And to the same orchestra, we'd all be, oh, you'd have nothing but discord in terms of the music. It wouldn't be beautiful. It wouldn't be unified. It wouldn't be harmonious. It'd be a disaster. But Paul says, no, we have one Lord, one master, one boss that we are accountable to, that we're taking orders from, and he is a perfect boss. He never makes a mistake. He is omniscient. He's all-powerful. He knows everything, and if we obey him, then we will live harmoniously. That's what he's saying. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. He goes on, one faith will help preserve unity in the body. That's the middle of verse 5. One faith. Faith is used a lot of different ways in the New Testament, but I think the emphasis here for Paul, as it is most of the times when he uses the word faith, is subjective faith. In other words, it's how we get saved. The Bible is clear of how every human being gets saved. We get saved by faith, says one passage. And then Ephesians 2, Paul says, it is by grace, God's grace, through faith. So faith is the human mechanism. And even Ephesians 2 says that our faith that we put in Christ to get saved, that faith is a gift from God. So Paul's emphasis here is, you know what, Christian? All you Christians should be getting along harmoniously because I need to remind you, you all got saved the same way. None of you got saved by your works. You all got saved by God's grace. And it was through faith. And you did absolutely nothing to accomplish your salvation. So we all got saved the same way from a human perspective. And as a result, that's why in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says, you got saved by grace, through faith, apart from works, so that no one can boast. So you don't have any Christians walking around flexing their mouth. You know how I got into heaven? <laughs> Here are my seven good deeds. God was really impressed with my good deeds. Yeah, so was Peter. What about you? I heard you got in only by faith. You didn't do any good works. Well, that's just not true of Christianity. Nobody gets saved by works. It's not by doing the Ten Commandments. It's not by going to church. It's not by uh, obeying the sacraments. None of that earns salvation. It is by God's grace through faith. And that's true for everybody who becomes a Christian. That is distinctive of Biblical salvation, so it's one faith. So that puts all of us in our place, isn't it? We're all, you know, oh wow, we're pretty much nothing. We got saved by God's grace, and that's it. Praise the Lord. We're all on equal footing. Therefore, we can be unified. And then he goes on, one faith, there's one baptism. What does that mean? Well, it's not water baptism in the context. Baptism, baptizo, used five different ways at least in Scripture, and it always depends upon the context. But the word baptizo just simply means to be immersed in or to identify with. I think what he's talking about here, the way he's using it, is Mark 10, 38, Romans chapter 6, says that true believers, true Christians, are baptized into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And what the, the emphasis here is, this is salvation from God's point of view. Whereas, by faith is salvation from the human point of view. We exercise faith. Salvation from God's point of view is that God saved us by immersing us and identifying every single one of us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We were swallowed up and immersed and baptized in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, and that is how we got saved. In other words, he's saying the same thing again. We all got saved the same way. It was by faith, and it was by the work of Christ. And nobody has reason to boast. Which, once again, puts us in place. It gives us the proper perspective. We're totally dependent upon God for all things, which helps build unity in the church. And then finally, he says... One last thing that keeps us unified in terms of our perspective is one God and one Father of all. Of all, he's referring to Christians there, not all people. Because God is not the personal loving Father of somebody who's not a Christian. You have to become a Christian to become a part of the, the family of God. You must be born again, Jesus said. So one God and Father of all is all Christians. So in other words, every Christian, whether you like, think of, think of some Christians you don't like right now. Oh, I know, I'm causing you to sin. That's, that's not good. But if I said that and you actually thought of somebody, number one, shame on you, shame on me. 
because that's not good, that is not right, that is actually sinful. And Paul is reminding us that if I thought of a Christian I didn't like, I need to be reminded that even that Christian has the same God and the same Father that I do. Did you know that God the Father loves that Christian you don't like just as much as God the Father likes me? It's like if you're in a family of siblings. I have four children. I love all of my children the same. I don't show preferences, or at least I'm not supposed to. God doesn't either. God is a perfect parent. He loves every child of God the same. Every believer is a child of God. He is the Father, and He loves all Christians the same. The question is, do you? Do I? It's a sobering question. I've heard people say, well, I like that guy. He's a Christian. But I, no, I, I love that guy in the Lord, but I don't like him. Yeah, that's semantical gymnastics is what it is, and you, there's no warrant for it in Scripture. As a matter of fact, the Bible says you need to have affection for the brethren. You know what that means? That means you need to like, not just love, other believers, the household of faith. So if you have that attitude, this dualistic attitude of, well, I'll love them in the Lord, but I don't like them, then you know what we need to do? We need to, we need to pray. Confess, God, I have a hardened heart towards this fellow Christian. God, soften my heart towards this person. Help me actually like them the way that you do and love them the way that you do, God. God will answer that prayer because that's his perfect will. And then at the end, this is kind of neat, at the end we're just kind of one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then we just kind of don't even talk about that phrase and, or what it means, the implications of it, but actually it's awesome. What it's saying is that three things. God the Father, regarding every Christian, he is over all. God the Father, that's his dominance over every Christian. God is sovereign over my life and every other Christian's life. That's God's dominance. Overall, he is through all. That is God's imminence. That means he is immediately present, present with and in the midst of every Christian and working through every Christian. Did you know that God is accomplishing his will through other Christians, whether you like him or not? Every Christian is the same. God's dominance over every Christian, his imminence through every Christian, and finally, and God is in all. That means his presence. He is in every Christian by virtue of his indwelling Holy Spirit. If they are a true child of God. That is awesome. If we think about those things and we start giving the benefit of the doubt to other Christians, then that's going to help our attitudes, which will also help us live in perfect unity that pleases God. And then we become a brighter, shinier, and a more stark contrast for the world to see of who Jesus is, that they might be saved. That's great and awesome truths. Um, Let's go ahead and pray and ask God to help us to live a life of pursuing right attitudes and right thinking so we can be unified as a church. Father, we thank you for our time together, our time to study the Word of God, and thank you for reminding us here at Grace Bible Fellowship. We need to pursue unity, and we need to do it in a practical manner. God, you need to humble hearts. You need to soften hearts, including mine, towards how we think and towards how we treat other people. I pray that would be a hallmark of Grace Bible Fellowship, that we are unified as a body. And uh, just thank you for these great truths. Pray that you make them practical in our life. We commit them to you in Christ's name. Amen.